Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. All right, here's a joke. It's a drummer joke. How can you tell a drummer's at the door? He doesn't know when to come in. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from rock musician Michael Benjamin Lerner, a.k.a. Telekinesis, that'll help break the ice. He's a drummer, by the way. Self-hating drummer. Apparently. His latest album is called Dormarian. Later, we'll hear from Ava Mendez, star of the film The Place Beyond the Pines, which just came out on DVD. And if all that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of an episode that first aired this spring. So cast your mind back to an innocent time before the NSA surveillance leaks, when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Roger Ebert died today in Chicago. The North Korean army says it now has approval to launch a merciless attack against the U.S. Baseball is back, and well before the first pitch was thrown, predictions were being made. Who will win the divisions, the pennants, and of course the World Series. Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Jesse Pearson. He is the editor-in-chief of the new literary and culture magazine Apology. Jesse, welcome. Thank you. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I'm interested in this story about this um, Dutch art duo, uh, Lynette and Sander, who created a perfume that was made up of 1,400 samples of every perfume that was launched in 2012. So it's like the <laughs> mop bucket of perfumes or something. Was this sponsored by Tylenol, by any chance? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they basically recreated the, the scent of a mall. Yeah, I think that that's uh, – they actually mentioned that, I think, in, in, in a, an article I read about it. They say that it smells – most like walking into the perfume area of a department store. Is that the intent? I think the intent was just to have a pithy thing to say that they did more than anything else. <laughs> um, and the, the mission smell, accomplished. Yeah, yeah, mission accomplished. Well, here we are. But I can relate to that. I love that smell when you walk into Macy's or something and you're bombarded by that like. Really? You like that smell? Well, I see. That's why this interests me is because I have a very complicated relationship with perfume and cologne myself. Like, how so? I don't think that on the surface someone would peg me as somebody who's interested in cologne, but I actually really like cologne, and I've always been a wearer of cologne. What? Up until fairly recently. Wait, are you wearing Marlboro Lights right now? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm wearing, uh, yes, Spittoon right now, it's called. Um, No, but I always was, and then I kind of got browbeaten enough by by various people in my life, my wife and my friends, to feel um, shame cologne shame. And so I stopped wearing <laughs> cologne, but I still keep like a sort of museum in my house, in my bathroom, of all the colognes I've worn. I think that should be a scent, by the way. Shame should be a cologne. That's right. Shame maybe, by, by Calvin Klein. That's a good idea. Maybe you should just combine all the perfumes in your bathroom and call yeah, it shame. historical shame. Sure. Shame by Jesse Pearson. Shame by Pearson. <laughs> That's fascinating. You know, if you combined uh, the scent of 1,400 unshowered people, I think it would smell like patchouli. <laughs> I think it would smell like Tompkins Square Park. <laughs> Another great cologne name. Jesse Pearson, thanks so much for the small talk. Thanks for having me. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a slip and slide, except you slide on a thin layer of booze. You should shower after. First, the history part. This week back in 1891, one of America's best-known companies opened for business. Though not selling the products they'd become famous for, Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Business students, chew on this. William Wrigley Jr. turned free stuff into cash. It all began in Chicago in April 1891, when William launched a company selling household products like baking soda. To give store owners a little incentive to stock it, he offered a gift. For every can of baking soda they bought, 
he threw in two free packs of chewing gum. As Wrigley predicted, merchants took the bait, but even he was surprised when the gum sold better than the baking soda. It was all Wrigley needed to see. Just two years later, he had quit the baking soda biz and started churning out the first batches of juicy fruit gum. Now, Wrigley didn't invent chewing gum, but he did invent a practice that probably helped make his gum so popular, direct marketing. In 1915, the company mailed out 1.5 million free samples, one for every household in every phone book in America. Since then, Americans have gone without Wrigley's most popular flavors just once, during World War II when rationing meant the company only had enough good ingredients to supply juicy fruit and double mint to soldiers. Civilians had to settle for a lower quality substitute. Wrigley's called it Orbit. Everything worked out in the end, of course. The Nazis were defeated, juicy fruit returned to American shelves, and Orbit was retired, before being reborn in the 2000s as a sugar-free gum. Today, the gum bubble shows no signs of bursting, the industry cranks out 374 trillion sticks a year. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. On the line is Nandini Kound from The Violet Hour, which was just nominated for the James Beard Award for Most Outstanding Bar Program. Nice. The bar is in Chicago, where the Wrigley Company was founded. So Nandini, a chewing gum-themed drink, I'm curious to hear. How you met this challenge? Well, I came up with a drink uh, with a really goofy title. It's called The Taste is Going to Move You When You Pop It in Your Mouth, based on the theme for the Juicy Fruit commercials. <laughs> oh, right. That was the the Juicy Fruit jingle from the 70s and 80s. From the total 80s ad, yeah. From my youth. Um, it's going to be hard to order. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Especially if you've had a number of them, because you'll forget what it's called. <laughs> But what, so what is in this thing? Um, so basically I did some research on juicy fruit and found out that basically the flavor is a very mysterious concept that people have been debating for a while. Yeah, like what is that flavor, basically? What is that flavor? Yeah, it's like kind of banana-like, kind of pineapple-like. But I found a lot of research that said that jackfruit, which is a Southeast Asian tropical fruit, was kind of loosely the juicy fruit flavor. Jackfruit? Jackfruit, yeah. So I just basically made a daiquiri, a simple daiquiri with this rum from Tennessee called Pritchard's, which has this, in the most flattering of ways, it has a little bit of hint of bubblegum to it. Oh. Where does the jackfruit come in? So you start with rum. Yeah, basically it's three quarter ounces of lime, um, a half ounce of, you can buy canned jackfruit from like Asian specialty markets. So I just use um, a half ounce of the canned jackfruit syrup. Because a real jackfruit is super pain. Because I looked for one and I was like, oh, these are really large, prickly, and I have no idea how to open this. So I just got a canned one. But um, a half ounce of jackfruit syrup, two ounces of the Pritchard's rum, and you just shake it and pour it either over ice or neat. I do think that regardless, to really keep with the theme as you drink it, it should lose its flavor. <laughs> Though that's really important. <laughs> And Brendan, dentists are going to kill me for saying this, mm. but there are studies that show chewing gum helps you concentrate. Like kids who chew gum supposedly do better on standardized tests, and also they snack less on high-calorie foods. Wow. Yes. Well, call me when it does the dishes. I will. That's not enough for you? Oh, I don't take tests every night after dinner. Well, true. <laughs> Folks, 
Nandini's online drink recipe magazine, Craft Cocktail, launches in May, but you can find this recipe of hers on our website right now. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've had a cocktail, made some small talk, but no party has truly started without some music playing. For that, we turn to Ted Joyner and Grant Widmer, a.k.a. New Orleans indie rock duo Generationals. Their new album hits stores this week. Here they are with a list of tunes from other musicians. Hi, this is Grant, and I'm Ted with the band Generationals. That's right, and we just made a new album called Heza, and uh, this is the dinner party soundtrack we put together for you guys. Well, uh, for our dinner party, which you guys are invited to, uh, I think we envisioned kind of having a bunch of people over. And to get things started kind of for the pre-dinner cocktail hour, we wanted to start things off with some Chet Baker. Off of his record, Chet Baker Sings, a song called That Old Feeling. I saw you last night and got that old feeling When you came inside, I got, I got that, that old feeling the irony is that we got into Chet Baker Sings, the record, thinking that he was a singer. <laughs> right. And w- which he is. Probably, you know, among jazz fans, he's m- probably more famous as a trumpet player. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's, his voice has got a really soothing quality to it. There'll be no new romance for, for like a Saturday afternoon, or it's kind of just relaxed. For that old feeling is still in my heart Number two, this is a track called Rent Money by an artist named Dent May And so I hear Rent Money kind of being our appetizer like when we first start bringing out the food Yeah, we're going to bring out some uh, fried green tomatoes Oh yeah, there you go, fried green tomatoes It's a favorite appetizer dish for me and for dip it in like around here Remoulade Yeah, yeah That'll work. That May is a, a rock band from Mississippi. They're kind of playing against type. It's, it's, it has more of a breezy, sort of like California maybe rock band vibe. So I think sometimes it's fun to have music that contradicts itself. Their kind of clean electric guitar sound is is sort of uplifting sounding, and then songs about the kind of the, the day-to-day grind that this guy's going through. Number three. Yeah, number three. The, the third song uh, that we're going to go into here is called Headache, uh, tracked by Frank Black. This wrinkle in time can't give it no credit. I thought about my speech. As a 12-year-old, I was kind of blown away by it. I had no idea who the Pixies were or anything like that. It's a good kind of upbeat rocker. That's why we chose it for our main course. Got me a realize you're like kind of nodding along to this song where um, Frank Black is 
telling you about his terrible affliction that he's dealing with. I guess, you know, that's kind of part of our menu is uh, bad thoughts, bad feelings couched in like good vibes, good sounding vibes. I think those are the, the best songs. I guess it might turn a few friends off. Then maybe they'll push their plate away. No, they'll love it. They'll, they'll play along. Yeah, so that's all our songs for our dinner party. I guess we'll close it out with uh, one of our own songs. This is a track off the new record that just came out. It's called Put a Light On, and here goes. It's one wicked road, you gonna make it right. You found your way to go, you gonna take that. Ted Joyner and Grant Widmer, a.k.a. Generationals. Their album, Heza, came out this week. Next week, they launch a national tour. And folks, we're going to launch into a short break. Fun. Coming up, star of the Twitterverse Kelly Oxford tells us about letting magic into her brain. And Saturday Night Live vet Julia Sweeney regresses. I have to go lay in the fetal position now for a minute, but then I'll be back to the interview. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later in the show, author Mary Roach tells us some interesting facts about the alimentary canal. Hmm. Like, Rico, did you know stomachs can blush? I, wow, I knew about growling but not blushing. That's interesting. They do both. You should try embarrassing your stomach sometime. <laughs> I think it's embarrassed every time I eat a Pop-Tart. Also coming up, we sample some NYC salt, but first it is time to learn some manners. Yes, each week you send us your questions about etiquette, and here to answer them this week is Julia Sweeney. She was a cast member of Saturday Night Live in the early 90s, where she created the androgynous character Pat, among others. Since then, she has written and performed in several critically acclaimed one-woman shows. This week she releases a new book called If It's Not One Thing, It's Your Mother, a memoir about deciding to adopt as a single woman, searching for and finding a husband, and raising a family. Julia, welcome. <laughs> I'm just you... laughing at the searching for and finding a husband. Yeah, well, it's, it's <laughs> I guess true. that's true. It's true. <laughs> I mean, was an I alternative title I, search party? <laughs> I have to go lay in the fetal position now for a minute, but then I'll be back to the interview. No. Well, you talk about going through, you call all your former relationships Joe. That's true. Yeah, Joe number all the nine, Joes. Joe number 10, and then you met Michael. You're, yes, you're, so he I gets a lying. name. I wasn't lying. He gets a real name, yeah. Wow, lucky um, guy. But before we get there, let's be honest, the title of this book... It's a little hokey. I laughed. It is hokey. If it's not one thing, it's your mother. I actually didn't want them to name it that. I had that opening chapter, which Mm. I wrote, and then the publishers really wanted that name. And I did, too, at first, because people did laugh. But then I wrote a lot of extra chapters for the book, Mm. and that chapter really would have been one I cut, except that it had that title Mm. in it. You kept the first chapter of your book just because it had a cool title? (laughs) Well, I I mean, I... It is a good introduction to the characters yeah. in the story, and it is kind so. of good thematically because it's it's all about this pillow my mother gave me with that quip on it, and I really hate it. And I hate puns that are rhyming, especially. I just hated everything about it. And then when I adopted my daughter, it suddenly was hysterical to me. Like I got <laughs> this weird mom sense of humor, and I put it on my daughter's bed. I think it's funny when it's on someone else's bed. No. And then my daughter came to me when she was six and said, "I don't want it anymore. It's not funny to me." So I thought that was a good 
Yeah. Completing the cycle. So there. it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, let, okay. let's talk about another portion of the book. We, okay. you, you don't have to dwell on this any further. You, okay. you have a particular beef with strollers, very large strollers. Oh, you're the first person to bring that up. Mm. Is, is that true? Yes. We actually read. I books. know. Um, this chapter that's in the book is just about how obnoxious to me huge strollers are, especially in urban environments when there's a limited amount of space for people yeah. to walk. And mm. people have these Hummer-like like SUVs, contraptions yes. at the Shed Aquarium in Chicago. These women, they're shoving this thing up in front of the yeah. aquarium with the jellyfish that no one can see. And the baby's asleep. And what yeah. is the, It doesn't even matter. And you can't do anything about it because they have a baby. You would right. be rude to say, excuse me, could you move I your baby? Because that sounds mean. And what's the need of such? a thing. Not that long ago, we did fine with smaller strollers. I think it's the obsession with safety. It's sort of like the whole SUV thing, like you're so much safer in a bigger car, but then it created this feedback loop of bigger and bigger cars. Mm. Well, look, clearly you have some wisdom to give to the world. Especially about strollers. Your stroller wisdom (laughs) leads us to believe. How about you answer some of our listeners' Yes, okay. You ready for these? I don't know if I'm ready, but just throw them at me. (laughs) Here we go. This is uh, Patricia via Facebook. We don't know where she's from. Patricia writes, what does a hostess do when a guest answers his cell phone? I have a sign at my front door that says, welcome, our house is smoke-free, gun-free, and cell phone-free. Violators will be persecuted. How do we teach manners about the use of cell phones, iPads, etc.? Hmm. Okay, first of all, this woman has a lot of rules. (laughs) I think that's the etiquette we really need to talk about, having a sign like that outside your house. I... I would say 90% of the time, people only answer the phone if it's important. If they're mm. in a social situation, mm. especially if they're in someone's house, yeah. they don't take the call unless they have to. You have a tween now. I think you know better than this. Like, this is maybe our generation does that, but I feel like these millennials, damn it, they'll answer their phone for any damn reason. Well, they, millennials That's don't true. use the phone, they just text. No, they just text. Yeah, there's no phone. Okay, because I was going to say the difference is texting and looking stuff up on your iPhone because someone said, What kind of cloud is this? <laughs> that is rude. My husband and I get into that because we'll go to dinner, and if any question comes up where we don't know the answer, his nose is immediately in his iPhone finding out the answer. (laughs) So now I say, do you ever wonder, and don't look this up if you don't know. (laughs) There you are. Where in India Mumbai actually is. And then he's like, and you can see how hard it is for him not to look. It's traumatic. But there's your answer, Patricia. Uh, Phone calls are okay, uh, but looking up trivia is not. Yes, exactly. All right. We have another question. Okay. from Krista in Reno. Krista asks, what is the best way to tell a boss that your coworker isn't pulling their weight? Also... Does that happen on SNL name names? No. <laughs> <laughs> she knew you were coming. Wow. I I have no idea who went to Lauren and said they didn't like who or who, but I wouldn't have even thought of going to the higher, you know, ups like Lauren Michaels and saying anything about another cast member. Really? I would never have done No, I wouldn't even think He's of like, it. He's like, look, I survived Belushi, Aykroyd. Yeah, seriously, you can handle also, it. Also, their work, <laughs> in show business, their work speaks for itself. Like, if you're going to fail, you're going to fail in front of the audience. And if you're not failing in front of the audience, you can do anything you damn well want. Right. So yeah. it's, yeah. but in a normal workplace environment, like if you were working in an office and you knew this person wasn't pulling their weight, but others didn't, and maybe the boss didn't, I would go out with the boss for a drink and I would say something like, I have this feeling about this person that may be inaccurate, so mm. take this with a grain of salt, but mm. I just need to say that. That sounds dangerous, though, because yeah. once you finish that drink, it's no longer delicate. I have this feeling. It's like, look, 
He doesn't ever replace the toner. Yeah. Comes in at noon. You want to make sure there are just a, there's one drink, maybe not two martinis. Yeah, maybe coffee or tea. I know, okay, coffee or tea. Okay. Well, there you go, Krista. <laughs> All right. So here's here's somebody uh, who identifies themselves as food snob in Cambria, California. Okay. That's redundant. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, food snob writes: I attend a weekly potluck with church friends. The problem is that I'm a foodie, and my friends are not. I love cooking for them, and I prepare something that is almost always a hit, but I usually don't care much for the food they bring. How do I deal with this problem politely without suffering through too much blah food? I feel like a bad person. You know what? By the way, I sense a humble brag in there. <laughs> I you know? Know. Like, my food's always a hit. I mean, call me crazy. I feel like food snobs being a little bit of a food snob. <laughs> no, I think you should feel good. Okay, here's how a church person... God has put me in this situation to enlighten the other people about what real good food is. Right. So, yes, I bring the good food. And, yes, she has to eat a little bit of their bad food. But so what? You can leave and eat good food later. You're doing a service to this church group by bringing good food. She is yeah. literally God's gift to this church group. Yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> wow. wow. Nice job, food snob. Yeah, I mean, spin it narcissistically like many <laughs> church group people do. Julia Sweeney, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. <laughs> Thank you for allowing it. And now, time to eavesdrop. Writer Kelly Oxford's honest, irreverent commentary about everything from young motherhood to Madonna has earned her a Twitter following 500,000 strong. She's now an in-demand Hollywood screenwriter. Today, we overhear her tell a dinner party-worthy tale that's pure magic. Hi, my name's Kelly Oxford. I've written a book of essays called Everything is Perfect When You're a Liar. Today, I want to share with you a story about one of my notable Twitter followers. I hope you enjoy it. David Copperfield, the magician, had sent me a shout-out saying that I was one of his favorite tweeters online. So I sent him a quick direct message that said, do you have any magic going on? He replied completely earnestly, yes, I do. I have shows on this day and this day. And if you want to come down and see a show, you're more than welcome to. And I will also give you a tour of my private museum. This, of course, blew my mind. So my husband and our very close friends, Angela and Matt, planned a trip to go down. David set us up. Matt was really into conspiracy theories and secret societies and druids, and he had read up before we went on this trip and knew that David Copperfield had this island with a secret cave with psychic monkeys that could draw people's thoughts. And Matt was like, I'm going to ask him about this. And Angela, his wife, was just like, please, like Matt, don't ask What David had planned for us was a trip to his private museum that he has that he does tours for special guests. David's a perfect host. He starts, you know, asking us how we know each other, how we're friends, where we met, what we do for work. The museum, it's hard to understand unless you're there seeing all of these things in person, but let me just sort of explain to you what Copperfield has in this emporium. Every single thing you've ever seen Houdini in any photograph with is in this emporium. His water torture cell, his metamorphosis trunk, the chains, he's got every single thing. He has a puppet room, every ventriloquist figure of all time, 
And there's a lot of weird stuff I wasn't expecting in there, too, like Shari Lewis's lamb chop, the puppet lamb chop that I grew up with, was was actually there. And she was cute in person. And then there was Howdy Doody that I grew up with, too, who was actually very ugly in person. The counter from Macy's, where he saw his first magic trick, he had actually tracked down and bought it. It was just one thing after the other of showing how powerful and how hard he had worked and, and what sorts of things he could conjure and make happen. So I'm, I'm looking at all of these amazing artifacts and I'm thinking, wow, this is really incredible. And David, out of nowhere, being the magician he is, slides up to me and says, yeah, this really is incredible. I really am glad to be sharing this with you and walked away. So to myself, I was like, did I just say that out loud? And I walked over to Matt, who was looking at Doug Henning's jean jumpsuit, which was very, very, very tiny. And I said, Matt, you know, what were you saying earlier about these psychic monkeys that were on David's island? Do you think that if he trained these monkeys, David himself can read people's minds? And Matt turned and looked at me and was like, he can absolutely read minds, Kelly. Like, don't be a fool. So I had to test it out. The next display, it was this contraption where all of these flowers suddenly would grow out of the middle of it. And he had all of us sit down in chairs and watch this one. I looked over at David and I thought, you know, David, if you can read my mind, give me a sign. It felt weird to think it, but I thought it. And then what happened next was horrifying because at that exact moment, Matt's chair fell backwards, it was spring-loaded, and shot him across the floor. I had hurt my friend, and out of the four of us, he was the one true believer in Copperfield, so I felt extra bad that he had been picked up to throw out of a chair. (laughs) To even put me in a place where I was considering if he could read my mind or not shows that David Copperfield does have magical powers. Writer Kelly Oxford, there's a lot more to that story in her new memoir, Everything is Perfect When You're a Liar, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. Yeah, it is an incredible show. We're glad to be sharing it with you. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So Rico, for a lot of people, locavorism, only eating food grown within 100 miles of where you live, has become a way of life. That's true, especially for those of us living in California. Take yeah, it seriously. because every food in the world grows within 100 miles of you, so <laughs> big sacrifice. Pity us. The environment thanks you. But you know, locavores may not be eating as local as they think. For example, where does your salt come from? That's a good point. Yeah. I don't know. Sarah Sprawl had the same question, so she decided to make her own salt locally on the roof of a building in Midtown Manhattan, to be exact. Yeah. I visited her at her rooftop salt farm the other day, and I asked her the obvious question, if you make salt for a living, does that mean you're always thirsty? I am thirsty all the time. I've done many salt tastings where at the end of it, I'm about to collapse, but I don't make a habit of it. (laughs) All right, let's tell everyone where we are. I'm staring at the top of Madison Square Garden and the Empire State Building, This isn't your traditional salt farm. No, it's not. It's actually the first ever rooftop salt farm in the world, as far as I know. So what gave you the idea to create it here, and what made this space the right space? Well, back in January, I was doing cooking demos for the Union Square Green Market, and I was so proud of every ingredient and the dishes that I would cook because I knew everyone involved in each ingredient. And then I would finish the dish with salt from any store, Um, And I just thought that there should be more thought put into it. So it started as a hobby and snowballed into a salt house, which is an 8x12 house 
with evaporation trays. And um, But how did you end up on a roof in Midtown? It doesn't feel very farmy up here. It doesn't, but there's a lot of rooftop farm culture in Brooklyn, and I just thought that the city was kind of behind the time. So I decided to kind of find people that I knew with rooftop space. And you need to be outside because sun is the key ingredient, right? So tell us. How is salt made? So the one and only ingredient in our salt is Atlantic Ocean water. We have local fishermen that go 30 miles off the coast of Montauk to fish. And while they're fishing, they gather the water, which we bring up to the rooftop, filter, and evaporate in our salt house. Is 30 miles enough? I mean, it seems kind of scary to drink water from the Atlantic Ocean right outside New York. Right. There's actually zoning of where you can fish shellfish and let's say cod or tuna, and we only gather waters from those areas. So what makes a salt distinct from one another salt? I mean, I, I've seen bigger crystals, smaller crystals, some taste saltier than others, but I, is there a larger spectrum of flavors that I'm not thinking about? There is, and it actually is all about, people use the word terroir and wines, and I think it goes the same way with salt. Um, it's definitely about the mineral deposits in the sand, what fish grow in that habitat. We would get gray salt from up north, and then we get a more pure, larger crystal salt from the Atlantic. It also depends on the weather, if it's rained or not, and also the season that we evaporate in. In winter, the evaporation goes quicker because the humidity is lower, so the crystals are smaller. So show me around the salt house, please. We have four holding tanks that are 55 gallons each. Uh, we filter the water into these tanks and let it settle for about three to four days. And what do you filter the water with? With a micron bag, so it's an all-natural bag that we pour the water through. It just takes out like any debris, which is not anything really at all. You ever find a finger or anything like that? Never found a finger, but I'm sure we would if we made like Hudson River salt or something. <laughs> all right, so you, fil you filter out uh, the kind of debris and then? And then I let it settle for about three to four days. We empty uh, the water, we filter it again into buckets and then bring it into the salt house. So this looks like a mini greenhouse. With a wraparound porch. Yes, with the wraparound porch that we're walking on. All right. Wow. And then in here... So there's a lot of humidity going on, which is why we keep the roof fence open. Mm -hmm. um, but these are 500 bins uh, with water in each of them. We're looking at two... There's two rows of shelves, and there's lots and lots of these plastic trays with about... How, do, how much water is in here when you, when you fill them up? 64 ounces of water. This has evaporated a lot. I loaded them about three weeks ago. So there's about 250 gallons of water evaporating here. And so then you have a little table here at the end, and I guess this is where you do the salt sorting. What, what's the next step? Let's say one of these trays was filled with salt. Okay, so we harvest the salt, and then we're going to actually have a drying rack, just a small drying rack in the corner right here. And then that'll sunbake for about a day. And then we're going to take that salt, sort it on our little workbench over here, and then package it up. Can I taste some of it? What is the profile of your salt flavor versus something? Because I know they make salt in the Oregon coast and parts of California. So the Atlantic Ocean is one of the saltiest oceans in the world, which works to my advantage because I get more out of a gallon than other people do. Okay, and so the flavor profile is? The saltier salt than you'd get from the Pacific Ocean. I think it's really clean. Here you can put out your hand. You can see the natural crystal structure. It's beautiful. Yeah, they look like, they look like jewels. So it's a bigger crystal structure, definitely. It's got a nice crunch. And then at the end, it's just like a nice, buttery, clean finish. So that so we're up here, and it's really cool, but do you ever fear that 
We're, I mean, you're surrounded by trays of crystal. You're in a little building on the roof that ATF is going to come in here and kick the, kick the doors down. I have a story for you. Um, the other night there was a fire, I think, in the basement, and they had to check everything. So the fire department and police come up here and ask, what is all this stuff in this greenhouse up here? And actually, there's a gentleman that lives like one floor down, and he says it's sea salt. And the guy's like, it's not sea salt. So they eventually make the policeman taste <laughs> it, and nothing happened. I mean, he said it was fine, so. Now he's your newest customer. Exactly. So Brendan, I have to ask, is that standard police practice? You come upon an unknown crystal substance and so you just eat it? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, it does seem a little hasty, right? It's unwise. Also, if it were drugs, do you think there are drug locavores, <laughs> you know, who prefer that? They're like, excuse me, has this been harvested on the premises? <laughs> I'm very picky. I'm trying uh, to minimize my carbon footprint. Folks, coming up, <laughs> we hear a new song from Rogue Wave, and we talk to actress Ava Mendez about her new film, The Place Beyond the Pines. When the Dinner Party Download returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano. Coming up, we chat with guest of honor Ava Mendez. But first, it's time for Chattering Class, in which we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. And this week, the topic is how humans process dinner. Hmm. Our teacher is best-selling author Mary Roach. She wrote the books Bonk, about the science of sex, Stiff, which is about cadavers. She's a fan of the one-word titles. Yeah, her memoirs probably going to be called terse or something. <laughs> probably. <laughs> but her, her new book is called Gulp, Adventures of the Elementary Canal. And at one point in this book, a scientist describes humans as, quote, highly evolved earthworms surrounding the intestinal tract. It's very spiritual. When I met with Mary, I asked if she considered that her book's thesis statement. Yeah, that's where it all began. We were basically uh, a, a tube with a little bit around it. And, you know, at a certain point, to get to food sources elsewhere, you needed some way to get around. So you start developing limbs or, you know, some mobility type of device. They need a brain to kind of coordinate things. And the gut has a primitive nervous system. It's It really is kind of the most elemental chunk of the human. So me laying around on a Sunday, like eating cold leftover risotto all day in bed, I'm basically fulfilling my role as a human being. You're just dialing it back to the basics, yeah. Well, that's encouraging to hear. Okay, your book takes the reader on, shall we say, a nose-to-tail journey of the human. We don't have time to talk about all the stops that food makes on its way through your body, but I thought we could hit the key destinations. Um, so let's start with the mouth. You talk a lot about spit in this book. You profess to liking spit. What did you learn about saliva that makes you like it? I find spit fascinating because it is the most reviled substance. It's, that's a curse. You spit on somebody. That's the, the meanest, most degrading thing you could do. But it's actual. It, it spit is, and people think, oh, it, it just moistens the stuff that you chew up so that it's in the swallowable state. And uh, it does do that, but it also, it has antibacterial properties. Animals lick their wounds. There's a reason for that. And even mothers will kiss their child's boo-boo. Exactly. There's histatins, there's wound, which are like uh, have nerve and skin growth factors in them. They speed wound closures. And I wanted to do, I never did this, but I was hoping that somehow, I, uh, at some point, I'd have two injuries, two cuts about the same size, and I was going to lick one and not lick the other and then see which one healed. And I, it was on my to-do list for a long time. So it's interesting you talk about maybe licking your wounds, which kind of sounds gross, but this is one of the methods that scientists used to use. They used to use their own tongues, their own fingers, and that takes us to the next destination, the stomach. 
there's one of the most horrifying chapters in this book is about um, a scientist named Beaumont and a test subject of his, Saint-Martin. Can you share that story? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is, the year is 1822, and uh, Alexis Saint-Martin, he's a trapper, fur trapper. Somebody's gun goes off, shoots a hole in his side through his stomach, and he winds up in the hospital under the treatment of William Beaumont, an American Army surgeon. The wound doesn't heal. Eventually, Beaumont has the idea that this stomach with a hole, kind of a door to the outside, could be uh, useful for studying how digestion works, specifically the gastric juices. How can you just have a hole in your stomach permanently open? That that seems like wouldn't you wouldn't you die? It's a hole similar to the you know uh, the earlobe plug. It it just sort of heals up as a circular opening. It doesn't. It's not an open wound. So Beaumont would basically with this hole, he would draw the gastric juices from San Martin and study them and see how they break down food. But how did San Martin? eat food and have his gastric juices working without them spilling out this hole in the stomach. He had a little stopper. Really? Yeah, he had a little stopper, a little, a little, ga- little gauze wad. <laughs> That's such a gross visual. Okay, uh, well, on to something maybe just as unpleasant. Um, the final destination of our food journey, human waste disposal. Let's be honest, your book is full of <laughs> It starts and ends with studies about human waste. It's, wait, wait, it starts with What's the at the beginning. In the introduction, you talk about guys oh. going and eating waste to learn about the oh, nutrients. Bacteria. bacteria grown on, yeah, bacteria, yeah. But it would be grown on waste, yeah. All right, yeah, 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 you're right. And it ends with scientists who use human waste to help people. Can you talk about that? You mean the fecal transplants? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fecal transplant is, is something that's been used with good, great success these days to treat chronic infections with something called C. difficile, which is a bacteria that can get going in your uh, intestines and set up housekeeping in little hard-to-reach places, and it's very hard to get rid of it. It irritates the uh, intestines, and it causes diarrhea, and it causes a lot of chronic symptoms, and it can be fatal. And here's this: uh, there's a treatment that is 90% effective and, and cheap, and that is to take a healthy person's uh, a donor's, put it in a blender with some water, uh, and you make just uh, kind of, it, it looks like uh, coffee with low-fat milk in it. But it's done under a fume hood. You don't smell anything. And they use that same tube that you go up to do a colonoscopy. They just have a little plunger, and they kind of plunge it in there. All right. I think we may have stepped out of the bounds of dinner party conversation. This book is filled with so many neat facts that I think people would love to hear about that I want to do a quick lightning round thing where I will tell you the fact, and then you can quickly elaborate on it, okay? So the first one, when you blush, the lining of your stomach blushes too. Is that true? It's true. There was a guy named Tom. An entire book was written about Tom because he was uh, fed through his stomach. He was kind of a famous case. And his doctor noticed, in fact, when Tom would blush, and he apparently blushed pretty easily. How can somebody be embarrassed when 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 people are feeding you through your stomach? I mean, it seems like you're pretty comfortable with yourself. Yeah, no, he was very, it was was very sad. He ended up marrying a woman because he said, this was a quote from Tom, he said, she doesn't mind the way I feed. And then she said, he doesn't mind how I cook. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. So another one, spacesuits have charcoal filters. Yeah, and thank God for that, because otherwise you've got the fart recirculating past your face every few seconds. And the filter filters that out. Okay, I'll quickly move past that one. Um, your ears play a part in how food tastes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We love crunch. And if you, there's a study where they were they had people eating chips and they manipulated the sound, they masked the sound or they changed the frequency and people would say, oh, these chips are stale. They were exactly the same. All right, last one. 
Elvis Presley suffered from a megacolon. He did. Yeah, he did. Megacolon is a, it's a genetic condition where you don't have nerves at the very far end of your colon, and so things don't get carried along very well, and you tend to have really uh, killer constipation. And you suggest that that could have been how Elvis died. That's what his doctor, uh, and then the, the, the death certificate suggests that it was a fatal heart arrhythmia that came from pushing too hard on the john. All right. Elvis has left the building very much. Thanks for what I think was sort of dinner party conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Nobody ever invites me to dinner parties. So, Brendan, wow. what I have to <laughs> it's say. It's a lot, right? Yeah, it sure is. Well, a coda to that story about San Martin, the guy with the hole in his stomach. All right. After he died, other scientists asked his family if they could have the body. And they sent a note back basically saying, no, and if you try to get it, we will kill you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. It was not an organ donor. I guess they just didn't <laughs> have the stomach for it anymore. Yes. Whoa. Whoa. I'm sorry. Yeah. Folks, all our chattering classes live online. Listen to them all and you will have a PhD in conversation starters. Our website is dinnerpartydownload.org. PhDBD. Guest of honor this week is actress, model, and designer Ava Mendez. Her, why are you laughing? I model. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, her breakthrough role was playing Denzel Washington's girlfriend in Training Day. Since then, she starred in everything from comedies like Hitch and The Other Guys to last year's surreal art house hit Holy Motors. Her latest role is in the acclaimed movie The Place Beyond the Pines alongside Ryan Gosling. And Ava, it is an honor. So nice to meet you. Likewise. So this movie, it is it, it sort of starts as a gritty modern crime noir, and it does not stay that way. I'm going to leave it to you to sort of synopsize this thing in a way that doesn't give away all the twists. <laughs> I have no idea how to do that. I'm gonna need your help. It's a, you know, it's a drama. It's a thriller. It's a love story. It's a heist film. For the audience's benefit, I will say you play a woman who's had the child of a stuntman slash criminal played by Ryan Gosling. Yeah, when you meet us in, in the film, you know, I have this big secret that I'm not sure if I should disclose to him or not, which is that I've had his child. Which inspires him to do some pretty ill-advised and heartbreaking things to provide for the kid. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. You want a house? I'll get you a house. You want to get the f*** out of here? I'll get out of here. I got that trailer. I'll get a truck. We'll hit the road. What about my mom? She can come. What about Kofi? He can stay. He can get his own girl and his own kid. That's every man's right. Sounds like a nice dream. To me... This movie is, in a lot of ways, about guys struggling to be good, even though they've been raised in a way that makes it more likely they'll be bad. And actually, the director, Derek Cianfrantz, told The New Yorker he's, quote, exploring a new American male persona. So as the female lead, I'm wondering, did you have any trepidations about getting involved in a movie that is so much about guys' issues? Well, I didn't so much think of it as guys' issues. I, I, there was like two themes that I really loved, the whole nature versus nurture theme. 
are we a product of our society? Are we born this way? Is it, you know, all those questions. I've always been attracted to that theme, especially while growing up going, how can I be from this family? <laughs> Talking about my own family. Um, the other one is I love how Derek deals with violence in this film. I love that there's only two shots fired in this film and that you see the consequences of those shots way into the future. And that to me was really beautiful, especially now. I just was so proud to be a part of a film that actually said something. This is a far cry. Your first movie, I think it's fair to say it would be like a B movie. It was like Children of the Corn 5 or something. There was an interview where you talked about uh, Training Day, and you said that was the moment where you really felt this is what people meant by acting. What did you mean by that, and kind of like what changed between your first movie and that moment? Wait, what did I say? <laughs> you can't listen to anything I say. You're not keeping track of every interview you've given for the last 10 years? I don't understand. I think I know what you mean. I think, uh, yeah, my first thing ever was uh, Children of the Corn 5. I like to call it C5. But can I just make a note that Charlize Theron was in, I believe, C6, and Naomi Watts was in C4. Man, it's like a breeding ground for talent. Yeah, beautiful little sandwich there that I'm very proud of. Um, yeah, I think I remember saying something to that fact that I was two years in when I did Training Day, and I was just, you know, I did like guest spots on TV shows, and I wasn't quite sure what I was doing. I was like, do I love this? I love the challenge of it, but I didn't quite get it. And when I was on set and filming, I was like, oh, this isn't fun for me, yeah. you know? And then when I worked with um, Denzel on Training Day, there was just such an energy on set, and he's extremely electric and like, Things were happening, you know? So I was just like, yes, now we're playing. This is, I get it. I think this is fun. Um, the, uh, what, what was I going to say? Oh, oh, yeah. No, I'm rubbing off on you. That starts to happen. I apologize. <laughs> really? People just start forgetting things? When yeah, because that's me. I'll mid sentence and I'm out. I'm trying so hard. I'm, be, I'm being, I'm trying really hard yeah. to stay with you right here. Oh, man. It's, it's all not, right. It's nothing personal. It's, it's this thing I have. I, it's probably a condition. I should look into it. Well, you got a lot going on to distract you. I mean, this sort of plays into my next question, okay, which is you are both an actress and, as you mentioned earlier, a model. You mentioned that. I didn't mention that. As we mentioned earlier, you're also a model. Am this, I really? Well, this is my question. If you look at especially your recent roles, Holy Motors and this, it really feels like you're almost playing with that image of yourself as a model, especially in Holy Motors where you, you play a model who is literally abducted in the middle of a photo shoot and sort of dragged by this homunculus crazy man into a crypt. First of all, I want to ask, would you, could you do one or the other? Would you want a career where you had to do one or the other? Well, this is the funny thing is I never really, I, I didn't start off modeling and it's been a product of me being an actress. And I love that aspect of my career, but I, I still, I'm squeamish. Like when you say model, I'm like, no, you know, I'm not. I've, uh, Why? I don't know. I mean, I see in the in these roles a kind of ambivalence. I mean, this role is very unglamorous. It's a really gritty role. And Holy Motors are obviously taking the idea of a model and sort of poking fun at it. Well, yeah, but for me, it wasn't so much that she was a model. It was that she was just miserable and in this empty world. It was so ridiculous. And here comes this creature, this beast who, in my eyes, he didn't kidnap her. He saved her. You could replace that with being an actress as well. It just seemed, I think, a little bit more... Uh, visually pleasing for me to be standing on a tomb. That's right. The photo, it's a photo shoot at Père Lachaise that the character is undergoing. Yeah. And that's how he got me to Père Lachaise, one of my favorite places in the whole world. That, that's how you were persuaded to make the film? Yeah. Well, it was Leos Carac, the director. He said, you're going to film in, in Paris. And I'm like, oh, cool. Paris, cool. And he's like at Père Lachaise. I was like, what? For those who don't know, like Oscar Wilde is buried at Père Lachaise. Oscar Wilde is buried there and has the most beautiful um, epitaph. It's gorgeous. And Maria Callas and Jim Morrison and... It's just like 
city of tombs. It's my dream. It's beautiful. That's really your dream? Well, it's just kind of like, I don't know. Yeah, kind of my dreams. I have... I'm gonna sound kind of crazy, but but sure. I I love. I've always loved cemeteries, and that's just like the epitome of all. You know, that's the king mother of cemeteries that for is sure. The king mother. We have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. Yeah. And the first one is, and I hope I haven't asked it. If we were to meet you at a dinner party, yeah. what question would you least like to be asked? Um, so tell us about your film. <laughs> <laughs> did I did I do that? I asked you to summarize the film. That's a little more specific. I, I'm kind of joking, but okay. So we talked about it before about my condition. Um, if you ask me to summarize something or uh, to explain the plot of something, whether it could be you know it could be a great book, my favorite book, I, I'd be like, uh, oof. I'm uh, sorry. I apologize for asking that. No, question. no, no. You're- no, no. This is my bad. But here's here's a question that we also ask everyone that maybe is easier. Tell us something we don't know. And this can be anything about yourself or as anything in the world, a piece of trivia. Okay, well, it's not really a piece of trivia, but it's about me. I'm a total wannabe Egyptologist. I'm obsessed with ancient Egypt. What led to that, do you think? I, I don't know. Ever since I was little, I've just, oh, I'm going back to the tombs and the cemeteries and everything. I was really drawn to hieroglyphs, and I took a class last year, actually, at UCLA Extension. It was really fun. I started learning how to read hieroglyphs. Wow, that is complicated. Really? It was very. It was overwhelming. There's such an order to it. Like the way like a certain bird is facing on the hieroglyph, that's how you read the hieroglyphs. That's the direction you read it in? The direction you read it in. So you can you don't necessarily read left to right or right to left? No. You read the direction the bird is facing. There's such poetry to it, it's really beautiful and complicated. Actress Ava Mendez, she co-stars in the beautiful and complicated movie, The Place Beyond the Pines. But Rico, I want to know, why did Egyptians want their language to be read in either direction? I don't get that. I don't know. Just to show off, I think. (laughs) They're like, we invented paper, now check this out. Gilding the lily. Yeah, like everything else they touched. (laughs) Good point. That's what they did. And ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this encore episode of the Dinner Party Download. We will be back next week with an all new episode. Till then, you can keep up with us via Twitter. Our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Our handler is Jackson Musker. He is the assistant producer of the Dinner Party Download. Our interns are Davy Kim and Brittany Martin. Thanks to Charlton Thorpe and Michael Rayfield. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Rogue Wave's latest album, Nightingale Floors, made for great beach music this summer. Here's a song from it that can also double as back to school music. It's called College. Bon appétit. Where we come from Keep to ourselves Always got our eyes And the mountain around Because it always was And it always is The shattering That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And...
What is that sound? Oh, it's just my stomach hole whistling. It sounds beautiful. Stop it. You're going to make it blush. <laughs>